If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You want to know what the best email marketing service is for your small business? Well, I've got the team for you. Emailtooltester.com is the place to find reviews and tutorials of newsletter services like ActiveCampaign, MailChimp, GetResponse, and many more. Download their free comparison spreadsheet that will help you find the best email marketing service among many providers. Just Google Email Tool Tester Comparison Template to find it. Again, just Google it. Email Tool Tester Comparison Template to find it. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Rashad Tabakawala. He was most recently the chief growth officer and chief strategist at Publicis Group an advertising and communications firm with 80,000 employees worldwide. He now serves as a senior advisor to Publicis, but we're on the show today to talk about his new book, Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. And Rashad and I talk about his book, obviously, but also just what it means to be human in today's business world in light of all the technology and data that's flying around us and the impact that storytelling still has. And so I hope you enjoy this conversation with Rashad Tabakawala. And I do have to say I'm a little under the weather, but as most people say, the show has to go on. Well, Rashad, welcome to the show. 
Thanks again. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I know we, we were just talking a minute ago, but I would love to get you to um, describe yourself. You've had so many roles at Publicis Group over the years, and I believe you're now a senior advisor. So how do you describe what you do? So what I do right now is in my senior advisory role, I work alongside some of our most senior folks, obviously, the CEO the chief operating officer, as well as the heads of our companies, as a resource who combines both a long history in the company, where I have worked for 38 years, a perspective that is intensely global and across almost every type of business we have done in that I have, in addition to having my corporate roles as a chief strategist and chief growth officer, I have been the chairman of Digitas and Razorfish. I was the chief innovation officer for some of our media companies. I launched a lot of our digital assets in its early days, like Starcom IP and Giant Step and Tenu. And I also have tended to basically speak truth to power, including the days when suddenly I found I was the person in power. And that has been also appreciated by many marketers who obviously are listening to this podcast in that I tell them stuff sometimes that they don't want to hear. And often it's right, sometimes it's wrong. Well, as you mentioned, you've you've been at Publicis and its related companies for 38 years. What kept you at a company that long? Well, there are two answers. One, which is potentially an answer, is I'm totally unemployable. So I had to stay in the only company that hired me. That is also very possible because the reality of it is nobody has ever given me a job offer in 37 years. That's actually true. And that might be also because of another reason, which is I have tended to basically find opportunities inside my company that have allowed me to align three very important things. The first is some unmet need that I saw that marketers and our clients or our own business would have. Second is that unmet need sometimes linked up to a passion that I had. So my passions used to be for things like digital, the future of people, strategy, etc. And three is the company giving me the opportunity to launch new things that both met this supposed unmet need and my passion. So while I have worked My first job was in the Leo Burnett company, and I joined that in 1982. The last time my business card said Leo Burnett, though I'm still in the Leo Burnett building in Chicago, was 1995. So for the last 25 years, I've helped found, co-found, support about 15 different companies. And the opportunity to do amazing new things, learn while having the resources of what today is an 80,000-person company has been pretty incredible. So as a result, I go anywhere. Right. Well, and I guess, you know, given those launches and, and the various types of organizations you've worked for, even though it was under the publicist umbrella for largely most of that time, it probably didn't feel like you were always working for the same company. It didn't. And obviously, you know, the publicist part of the adventure started halfway through this in 2002 when publicist bought what was a company called Bcom3, which held Leo Burnett, which was private. But what has tended to happen is in many cases, some of the early launches, I actually moved out of the Leo Burnett building and we basically set up in a loft in Greektown, as well as I do about 140 flight segments a year. And that takes me also everywhere. So I've sat in clients' offices. I've sat obviously globally all over the place. 
And that has allowed me to see things from different perspectives. And that is really a big thing that outside service providers bring to clients, which is in the ideal world, we bring in outside perspectives, we bring in a range of different category experience. And if we are well-liked enough or trusted enough, we also often call out the turn on the table and tell them, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> I love that. I love that. Were there, I'm curious if there's, you've had a lot of, uh, a lot of events, I guess, for lack of a better word, throughout your career there. Any mentors stand out along the way that kind of helped you or guided you through the changes that you were making? Yes, there were several. I would probably be able to name at least a dozen, but what I would do is I will name three or four who have been particularly impactful. And I sort of call them out in my book, because while the book isn't about me or the industry, it is about leadership and growth and business. And you can't do that without people helping you. So one is a gentleman called Jack Clues, who basically had been my boss for in about 16, 17 years. And he helped set up the media business for publicists. And then at one particular stage, he was overseeing about 40% of the revenue. He was sort of the head of Digitas, Razorfish, Zenith, Stockholm. And he basically showed me how you can be an amazing leader and an amazing person at the same time. And you don't have to be good in business and be a bad person. That was pretty remarkable. I obviously have learned a lot from my recent boss, uh, Maurice Levy, who is a legend in the industry. And uh, just sitting in the room with him and seeing him operate over the years has been pretty amazing. But what is pretty extraordinary is understanding his people and his humanity and the kind of experiences he exposed me to. So those are two of my more recent bosses. But in my book, I talk about one of my first bosses who gave me advice on how I needed to be less Indian to succeed in this business and why I thought that was something so amazingly correct at that time and even today. He didn't say don't be Indian. He basically said you are living in an American society. You do not know enough about football. You don't know enough about college life. You've grown up in India. I've got to teach you because in addition to being very good at things, you have to also build relationships and networks. And he showed me how to do that. And that helped to a great extent, uh, pretty remarkably. And then sometimes my mentors actually have been people who are much younger than me who have taught me new things, like a couple of brothers who helped me launch Giant Step. They're about you know, a generation younger than me, and they came out of the University of Iowa, and they understood software and technology and explained to me how it was going to revolutionize the business. So you know, my sense always is mentors come not only from people above you, but they come from people younger than you and sometimes to your side. And if you are open, you can learn amazing things. That's awesome. Well, I do want to say congratulations on the new book, uh, Restoring the Soul. And the title is Restoring, Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. So why this book and why now? The reason for this book and why now are two. One which is more important to the reader, which I will talk about, and one which is least important to the reader, which was you know, I was sort of evolving as to the next thing I was going to do once I stopped doing full-time publicist. And for many years, people had said, why don't you write a book? Why don't you write a book? Because I had written blogs, I had given talks. And I said, look, I don't know if I've got something worthwhile to say, and I don't have the time. But over time, as I was beginning to think about my next 
sort of area. I said, okay, I'll have the time. And then I began to realize that there was a big issue that needed addressing. So I said, hey, there is an issue which I think I know how to address, and therefore I have something to say. And this is what that is. This is why the book is important for the potential reader. I believe that it is extremely important that any company, individual or team, realizes that success is combining what I call the story and the spreadsheet. So the spreadsheet is the math, the data, the metrics of a business or a brand. And those are extremely, extremely important. On the other hand, as important is the story of a business, the purpose, the culture, the emotions, and the talent. And I began to realize that about five years ago, because of stock markets and financial markets being more short-term oriented, but particularly because of the rise of data, because of the rise of data in marketing, because of the market cap and valuations of companies like Google and Facebook and Amazon, businesses all over were tilting too much towards the spreadsheet and were forgetting the story. And my thought was, I was beginning to realize that not only were the employees of these companies somewhat disengaged, saying, okay, this is all about math and machine, what role do I play? Because anybody who actually understands math and machine, as I do, with an advanced degree in mathematics, if you tilt your company completely towards one direction, you basically lose all agency and you will eventually lose your job because the machine will give you the answer if you only need a machine for an answer. But as importantly, I began to notice that companies that had the highest market caps were companies that actually combined story and spreadsheet. That when someone became too spreadsheet oriented, like a Wells Fargo, which basically said, let's just open accounts, let's just open accounts. They basically began to have problems. Most recently, Boeing, right? We got to ship the plane. On the other, in any particular category, let's say Costco versus Walmart, or let's consider Southwest versus United. Companies, even in the very same category with a lot of rules, who basically understood that it was about people and stories and culture and math were the ones that did extremely well. So that's the reason I wrote the book, because I began to also realize something that most marketers are still not realizing, and they're being taken for the biggest ride of their lives, which is, number one, it is almost impossible for any marketer to differentiate using data. Because in three, four years, people are going to realize that data is like electricity. You can't do without it. Is it important? Yes. Can you differentiate on it unless you're one of a handful of companies? No. It's literally, do, you, do your companies say we're a better company because of the way we use electricity? <laughs> no. This is remarkable. So what basically happens is I see brand after brand, marketer after marketer, give away all their margin, all their customer relationships, everything. And they go tilting towards one place. And my stuff is, okay, all your online programs are doing very well, but your business isn't. It's like being in a hospital where the monitor says you're healthy, but only the doctor is getting fat. And then it's like, my whole stuff is like, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to get a job at Facebook or Google? Or are you thinking about what you're supposed to be doing, which is basically looking after your brand strategy, looking after optionality, which is one of the reasons why now boardrooms, because I'm not talking a lot to boards, they're basically saying, hey, wait a second, this marketing shit is important. I said, yes, the marketing is the most important thing. It's not some pink collar industry. It's the future of your industry. You keep talking about consumers being empowered, but you don't have any marketers on your board. You have people looking after technology and finance, but what the hell's going on? And now they begin to realize that these platforms are actually not coming to disrupt agencies. Who the hell wants to disrupt an agency? They're coming to disrupt every client. Then they all wake up. And so my stuff is, come on, people, wake up. And that's what this book is about. Broadly, the book is something else, which is along the years, I also began to realize that many people were looking for guidance on how to do certain things. And so 
I sort of invented a book, which is 12 different books in one, which I'll explain to you later why I did it that way, because I sort of studied the book industry. And a lot of the guidance is how you as an individual can help grow yourself, your team and your company, because increasingly I find that most people are not even well-trained because as both marketers, agencies, and everybody else are slashing budgets, they're not investing in people. And I believe the only way you can transform a company is by transforming people, not by M&A and press releases. No, it's so true. It's so true. And you know, one of the, I guess, one of the assertions, and you've hit on this already, but is this obsession with data and technology has led to this lack of soul in many organizations. But I have to ask, you're a math guy. You're a tech guy. Are you somehow coming clean or is this something you've always kind of believed and has been at the core of you or did you discover this at some point? I've always believed it. I mean, as I write in the acknowledgments of my book that when I when I grew up, I wanted to be a writer. But my parents basically said, A, nobody's going to pay for a writer and B, you've got nothing important to say. So get going with mathematics. But as importantly, I sort of show that the reason I have succeeded whatever success I've had, has been less than half has been because of me. A lot of it has basically been because of the way people treated me, the way I trade treated people, and the way I basically built teams. And when I built teams, it was really about people first. And so most people are even you know, today surprised that even though my book has no scandal or, and no news value, which means it doesn't get news coverage, it's doing intensely well because every single person I work with is basically buying it for their entire company, saying this guy's the real deal. This is the way he operated. And that was my whole thing, because the other part of it is I was at a stage in my life, which I'm fortunate, where I could basically say whatever I wanted to say. There was a time where I couldn't say what I wanted to say because you had, I was protecting jobs, I was protecting clients, I was protecting my own company. And often what I'm now voicing is what major marketers are thinking. I'm basically voicing what a lot of young talent is thinking, which is where is all the leadership gone? Where is everybody? Where have they gone missing? And so my whole stuff is all the leaders are still there because I work with some amazing people or have worked with amazing people at marketers and brands. They're amazing people. But at some particular stage, they aren't voicing and aren't showing their real brilliance because they've got like conflated with all this number and data and press releases. And, you know, I always basically say remove eight or 10 words from people and they don't have much to say. What are some of the words? Platform, personalization, disruption. Remove some of these words. Most marketer statements are empty. No, it's it's very true. It's very true. Everyone's chasing those things. And the young people aren't following the senior people in companies. You know, my whole stuff is people don't follow titles anymore. They follow people and they say, who are these people? <laughs> it's true. It's true. Well, you have had one of the most endorsed books that I've seen in a while, just in terms of social media, people taking pictures of themselves with the book. You should feel good that so many people uh, are enjoying this book. So I don't know if you do take a moment to enjoy that, but I've never quite seen it of all the book authors I've, I've interviewed. I've never that much, um, that big of a, a groundswell, if you will. Well, you know, there, there are two or three reasons for it. One is all these people are taking pity on me and they're saying, oh shit, this guy's written a book. If it, if it doesn't do well, he'll come and like haunt us. So we better just get him up, get 
for helping with some sales, for God's sakes. Okay, so that could be one part of it. But I think more importantly is a couple of reasons, which is pretty much anybody who has read the book basically quickly starts buying it for their entire team. It's kind of remarkable. The whole stuff is like, oh, shit, everybody in my company should read this because it's sort of useful. But the third reason is almost all of these people have worked with me in the past over my long sort of in some format. They've been clients. They've basically been partners. They've been people I worked for or people have worked with me. And they began to realize that this is an operating manual for how to succeed. And it's something that has combined 40 years of my experience, but five years of research on each of these subjects and written like a story. And so their whole stuff is, this stuff is for real because I've actually seen it, but this stuff is for me and it's not your story. Because I was very, very clear that I did not want to write a book about advertising, branding, marketing, or myself, because there were too many books about that. And on myself, only myself and my wife and kids would be interested, right? So this is a book about to help people regardless. So I remember my publisher completely understanding, but another company that I was also talking to who had narrowed it down to two publishers. The other people were somewhat confused because they said, who's your target audience? And I said, everybody. And they said, that's not how marketing works. And I said, I know a little bit about marketing. And I said, I'm talking about human beings. I'm not talking about marketers. <laughs> uh, I, I agree with you. The book is good. And it, and it is targeted to anybody. To anybody. Get it, it is targeted to anybody. And it's also written in a way that you self-select what you want to read. Because as I say, it's a Spotify playlist. You can read any chapter in any order. Yeah, no, that's that's true. Well, one of the one of the chapters that stood out to me, and it may be because I've had a recent author on this guy, Emmanuel Probst. He wrote a book called Brand Hacks, and it was really about meaning and trying to restore meaning to consumers or tap into meaning for consumers. But you talk about the quest for meaning in the modern workplace and actually as it relates to employees. So can you tell listeners a little bit about what you mean by meaning in the workplace? Yeah, so what there is a statistic. So as part of the analysis of the book, as I said, I did a lot of reading and I took half time off for a year just to study for the book. And one of the statistics I found and I, is that more than half the people at work are disengaged. Right. And this is a global phenomenon, uh, but clearly an American phenomenon that half the people are disengaged at work. So they come in, they do what they need to do, but they're sort of disengaged. And so I said, why are they disengaged and when do people get engaged and what are they looking for? So how do you solve for this? So what are the engaged people doing versus the disengaged? And can we make the disengaged people engaged? And what I realized was everybody goes to work firstly for three things that are extremely important, which are one is money. You go to work to get paid. The other is, to a certain extent, you like power, especially as you become both more senior, you solve some of your money issues, but then you got power. And then you also have fame. And, you know, fame might be in a small way. It could be like, hey, I'm really good in my company doing this. So money, fame, and power. And those are important human traits. And we go to work in part because of that. But those have never been sufficient. And they've never been sufficient for two reasons. One is not everybody can get the fame and power, and most people obviously sometimes think that they're underpaid, right? So the money, fame, and power, while they're questing for it, they don't completely get. What keeps people very involved are three other things. And those are basically the potential to grow. Can they grow as people? Can they grow their skills? So growth is extremely important, which means can companies provide opportunities? Can companies provide mentoring? Can companies provide training? That's one thing that's very important. The second thing that they're looking for is purpose and meaning, uh, very much, you know, like brand hacks, which is 
what company am I working for? Do I believe in what the products and services are? Do I believe in my boss? Do I like telling people I work in this company? And that's important for them. And the third is connections. And connections mean, do I feel connected to my boss? Do I feel connected to other people in my company? Because after sleep, you spend most of your time at work. So do you feel sort of thing? So my basic belief is companies should recognize that if they help people grow, if they make sure that the company has purpose and meaning in a greater society and are optimizing for citizens and not just consumers, and they attract and retain and let talent both train themselves and speak, which is connection, they will do the single most important thing in the world. One, for the employee, they will get them to feel more meaning and therefore engaged. And if you get engaged, guess what happens? You get more productive, which means the company does better. That's number one. But as importantly, right now in America, and it's all over the world, we have two marketplaces. We have a marketplace where there is, and it depends on who you are and what you're doing. You could be in a marketplace for talent where the supply of talent is greater than the demand for talent. And as a result, that happens, you know, for instance, in, let's say, taxi and limo drivers, which is anybody can be an Uber driver. And so therefore, it's very hard for Uber drivers to get paid very well with benefits. On the other hand, if you are a database specialist, the demand for your skills are far greater than the supply. So my basic belief is this chapter I wrote for companies who are actually competing for talent, which I think most of my clients are, and I do believe my company is. And if a company allows growth, purpose, and basically connections, it begins to attract talent. So the ability to attract great talent from outside as companies are transforming and to get your talent inside engaged is the reason why purpose and meaning are important. It's not because it's some sort of yoga thing that, you know, it's all about meaningfulness and soulfulness. It's good business. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. I'm curious because you didn't write this book for coming from the perspective of the industry in which you operate, but is there, are there any reflections on the greater creative industry. Yes. Yesterday I did a sort of fishbowl, which is another Q&A sort of site. And then earlier this week, I did something on Reddit. And those two, because of the way those were set up, those two were more inclined towards the creative and marketing industry than general business, because you sort of have to fit in a forum somewhere versus being anywhere. And there were a few themes that came through, which I had already seen before, but these sort of talked about and these were what they were. So our industry, this is broadly the marketing and creative. So I, I, I do include clients in this and agencies and media partners uh, broadly. There are three big challenges that we basically sort of have. One is that, I hate to say this, but people are don't think they're very good leaders, okay? There is a leadership crisis in at marketers, at many, many media companies that are not, you know, the platform media companies. And definitely, you know, with regard to agencies, because people basically say, who are these people? Why aren't they basically facing both reality? Why are they not engaging with us? Why are they not recognizing that the future is about story and spreadsheet? Why are they basically hiding, running, changing jobs every two, three years, which is what we tend to do? Where is the leadership? So there's a bit of a leadership crisis. It may be broader than obviously our industry, but there is one. And that is the reason I wrote a chapter in my book called Leading with Soul, which is what people are really looking for today. The second issue really is this entire issue is 
in a math-driven, data-driven, short-term focus, what is the role of creativity? Does creativity matter? Or have we basically just become data-driven, spreadsheet, algorithmic, A-B testing people? And I build a case that creativity matters, that this is not about one or the other, it's both. And the way I look at it is, if anything is scientific and mathematics, I go to the data side. If anything is about people and it's unclear in the future, I go to the creativity side. And because life exists in both today and tomorrow, you need to combine both. And the third one is really a real big hunger, a massive hunger. So one of the reasons this book is doing well is not just because senior people are reading it and not because everybody else is reading it, but it's resonating a lot with people who are today in their 30s. Because what they are is they basically said, this is a training manual. People never told me any of this. And they said, this makes so much sense. And the difference is, this is why you know some of the people are, are liking the book. This is not theoretical. This is absolutely practical. You know, as, as a CFO said, when I asked him, I said, like, why did you buy the book for all 225 of your employees? He said, I get 100x return in 14 days. That's why. So I said, what do you mean? He said, hey, I read the book and I started doing two, three things that I hadn't thought about the book. And I thought I was became three to 4% more effective. So he says, therefore, I believe that my company will be on average 5% more effective. The average salary is 50,000 bucks. So I'll get $2,500 of value. I pay $25 for the book, 100x return in 14 days. That's why not because I like you. Bye-bye. So my stuff was, oh, I said, I better put that in an ad somewhere. <laughs> exactly. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Well, I have to ask about Marcel. And for, for listeners, yes, the AI-based platform, you, you may correct me a little bit here because there's limited information, but AI platform that publicists you've been building, it's been talked about, about you know, in terms of bringing a new way to organize and work globally across your 80,000 employees at Publicis. But the project's been a little bit delayed most recently. And I'm just curious if you can share anything about where you are with it. So I, I can give you a broad thoughts. The reason is I'm not, I cannot give you more specific is because over the last eight, nine months, as I've been more of an advisor, I've been like out of the day to day. So I don't get briefed on things like this. So I can just give you a broader thought. So I can't speak for it. Not that I could, I could speak for it more when I was a full-time employee and I knew exactly what was going on. But broadly, here's the way I would look at it. The idea of Marcel is absolutely correct in that we have to find ways for employees to be connected to four types of things. If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Because that's actually completely aligned with what my book says, which is employees want to find ways to be 
connected to each other. Remember I said connection is important. Second is they want to be connected to places and information which allows them to grow, which is learning, which is what this is going to do, which is everything from best thinking, case studies, look at all the, if you're creative, it takes you and looks, you can, you get the entire CANS archive, et cetera. The third is people are basically looking for opportunities. And in an 80,000 person company, there are so many opportunities. Why do we have to go outside? There are so many places that a person in a different country can solve. So they're looking for opportunities. And finally, they're looking for productivity, which is can they do things which they hate doing, but it can be somewhat automated, like time cards. And so what this platform aimed to do is solve for all of those four across the world, 80,000 people. Now, that was the dream. And we have started to do that. And it started to roll out in markets like the UK and the United States. But what happens is between the idea and the reality falls the shadow. And we're sort of in the shadow phase where we're clearly making progress, but it is slower. It doesn't mean that we aren't doing the right thing. And in hindsight, if I would have done anything different, it, I wouldn't have done anything different about the program. I wouldn't have spoken too much about it. Because what began to happen is because we spoke about it and it was also linked to not going to cans, et cetera, it sort of basically created both expectations, resentment, and to a certain extent, like, what are these people doing? But I think overall, it is the right thing to do. I would anticipate that most companies want to do this and different companies are doing it in, in a key way because it's eventually built around how do you leverage talent? And it's something that we all struggle with. Right, right. Well, and I, you talk about this in the book, but, you know, change sucks. <laughs> and I can imagine that any, and I've been a part of other large technology rollouts before, you know, and change just takes longer than anyone Change expected. always takes longer. It always takes longer. It's, it's one of those three things. Even like, you know, for instance, my goal was to basically start this advisory writing speaking career. But because I was smart, having seen how one is because I don't like change. So my stuff is, do I actually ever want to do anything different? Because my company was very happy with me. I was very happy with the company. But I said, hey, you know, we have to love, evolve. Because as someone told me, every career has a midnight hour. The smart people leave at 5 to 12. So my old stuff, but now my management said it was quarter to 12. But I said, hey, I think it's going to be one day 5 to 12. So, but more importantly, it takes a long time. So from the time I started planning to what I wanted to do, I knew it would take time. So I said, it'll take me three years from the time I start speaking to management to the time I get to what I want to do. Because A, it'll take me some time to learn all these new things. They'll say like, what the hell are you talking about? And I need to do the right thing by them. I also need to figure out what the hell I'm doing. So change sucks. And the reason I think change sucks is because it's so difficult. And I often tell people, it's kind of interesting. People come to you and say change is good. But if it's so good, why do they want you to change? And they don't change. So I tell people, you know, yeah, change is good, but guess what? I'm happy you change. But one of the reasons why change sucks is because especially when you're middle and senior management, when you do new things, you don't know what the hell you're doing. You make mistakes. People laugh at you. And why do you need that? So then what we do is we fake it. We send out press releases. We pretend we use, you know, buzzword bingo. So people think we've changed. And then one day something else happens, which is worse than change, which is the only reason I change, which is irrelevance. And I realized this because for many years, you know, as I was getting senior, so now I'm 60, so I've been in the business for 38 years. But when I was in my 50s and I would go and hang out with management of clients and marketers or my own thing, you know, over drinks, they would ask me a very strange question, which is like, how come you know all the stuff you do when you began to work when there were no computers? And like, how come you aren't confused about all of this? 
And my stuff is maybe I'm making a good story. I'm confused, but I'm faking it. But more importantly, I wasn't. It was because I decided that the world was changing around me and I would have to adapt to the future. The future was not going to adapt to me. And I also began to realize that the future, A, was going to come much faster than most people thought. But B, that because of the way we live in careers and economics, that we all end up working much longer than we think. So this whole idea of like, I don't need to worry about this. I'll be retired before then. That's stupid. So that's what people were thinking about. So I said, like, get over it, but learn. And to me, the most important thing is as a leader, if you aren't upgrading yourself, you're doing something terrible because what you're basically doing is you're destroying your company because you're making your company irrelevant. And more importantly, you fail to attract talent because nobody wants to basically come work for people who are focused on yesterday. Right, right, right. Very true. Well, as you think about those executives and this leadership a gap, you know, crisis, if you will, in not only the marketing and creative industry, but in maybe more broadly than that, what would you advise them? How would you set them on the path to restoring the soul of their company? So I would basically ask them to do a few things. Now, in my book, if I were to use my book, I'd say there are three particular chapters or four chapters in my book that particularly are relevant for leaders who are trying to basically remember that they're leaders. So all the people who I work with, who I sometimes say, like, where's the leadership gone? They're actually amazing leaders who, for some reason, are not showing that they're leaders. So all the people when I say, hey, where's the leadership? It isn't you aren't capable of being a leader, but come on, step up, lady or man, because you are remarkable. I remember when you were remarkable. So get with it. So one of the, the, the things I would basically say is I would have them read the change sucks chapter because I think that is a human thing that prevents some people from changing. And this shows how it can be done and why it should be done, which is number one. A second one is called how to upgrade your mental operating system. And that is how do you then, okay, so change sucks. You get over the fact that you have to change, but then how do you improve? So I have this chapter called How to Upgrade Your Mental Operating System because I became fixated on the fact that everybody talks about what they eat and how much they exercise, which is interesting. I figure that out sometimes too. But what separates us from a monkey is not our stuff, is our brains, not our stomachs. And so my whole stuff is, are you trying to understand what's going into your mind and how you are thinking and how you are learning? Because I said, it's all very well being slim and good looking, but unless you want to be a model, that's not going to be good for the long-term career. So you have to have a physical operating system so you're not dead, but you need to have a mental operating system so you are alive. So that's the second chapter, which is how to upgrade your mental operating system. For leaders, which are bosses, which is now because I've become senior, a lot of the people I work with tend to be relatively senior in companies. I would basically say there is a chapter I write, which is called How to Lead with Soul. And in How to Lead with Soul, it describes how the talent landscape that we are working in has changed, how the talent is not the way talent used to be. And we can't sit around and say, hey, these people are short-term oriented and they only look at screens. No, 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 no. This is incredible talent. But why and why are they being the way they are? So I'm sort of describing that and then I'm describing how we can lead in today's world. So that is the other chapter, which is how to lead with soul, where I have a very funny section where I also describe what a good boss is and a bad boss is. And that most people find hysterical. And most people recognize, even the best of bosses like myself, that on a bad day, we have some of the bad boss behavior. And so my whole stuff is, hey, everybody can be a good boss as long as we recognize what a good boss is. And when we are bad bosses once in a while, we apologize and move on. So that's the thing there. And then another chapter, with, which is off the time, because of the world we live in, is my opening chapter, which is probably the most uninteresting chapter 
in the book, but one that I had to start the book with because of the title. It's not uninteresting, but the other ones are even more fun. This one is a little bit fact-based, and it's called Too Much Math, Too Little Meaning. And that's really about how to think about data. And unfortunately, I can't write a chapter on how to think about data without talking about data. But what basically happens is explains to you why data is important, but how to control it and how to extract true meaning from it and how to add humanity and people and you as a leader, how to deal with it versus simply saying it's all about data. Yeah, no, I I agree. And it sets the foundation for the rest of the book. So it makes sense. It's the first chapter as well. Yeah. So but my daughters basically said, dad, it's damn boring shit. So my publisher and editor said, no, it is not. So don't change it. So I said, (laughs) I love that she's she's calling the turd out on the table. (laughs) She is. Both of them are calling the turd out and they appear in the book. And I had to basically get, you know, for people who appear in the book, I was getting basically releases. So my editor said, you don't have to get releases from these two ladies. They're your daughters. I said, no, specifically, I need to get it from them. So I sent it to them. And they basically said, this was obviously a joke, right? But they basically sent fake loyal letters saying that everything should be seized and desisted because all their success, all my success was due to them. And they refused to sign releases, allowing me to partake of any stories of theirs, which is all due to, you know, whatever. And my editor has two young daughters. So she was laughing and laughing and laughing. I love it. I love it. That's a great story. Oh, well, uh, I want to transition a little bit. I'm curious. I mean, you talk to and you're 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 talking to tons of people now as you go out and speak about the book and and the lessons that you're spreading, if you will. I'm curious if you've heard or share any top challenges that you're hearing from brand and company leaders for 2020 and beyond. I mean, obviously. A lot of what you write in the book is a challenge that they're facing, but I'm curious if there's anything specific. First of all, I think marketers today and many of the people I talk to, they're incredibly talented people, but I don't think they're getting enough support from their boards. So one of the things I'm going to boards and saying, please pay attention to marketing. It's the most important thing and stop fixating on technology and finance, which are not not important. They're important too. So with that being said, there are, I think, four big challenges that they're struggling with. One of them is what should their relationship be with the platform players, Facebook and Google in particular. And I've actually spoken at Google and I basically said, you know, I'm a little scared that you're going to destroy all my clients and I won't have any business. Because what is tending to basically happen, and also uh, Amazon, these are great companies, and they've provided amazing both value for us as consumers, and I think they're also big assets for marketers. But because they become so powerful, and they really are not competitive with each other, there's a little bit of competitiveness, obviously, between Amazon Search and Google Search, but they're not really competitive. One of them is sort of a monopoly of information, one is a monopoly of communication, and one is a monopoly of transaction. And no marketer can do without them. The question is, what role do they play once these brands have become so powerful? So how do you deal with them becomes a big issue, especially with every new thing increases their power. No cookies, no this, no that, right? That's number one. They're grappling with that. The second thing that they're grappling with is how do they basically recognize and both increase their own skill set and get the control and power or responsibility they need when marketing is much more than advertising and communication and promotion. And that they need to not only work well with the chief technology officer, but there's an entire thing about fulfillment because you can't today be a business who is not omnichannel and omnimedia. 
So this whole idea of only being a direct-to-consumer brand doesn't work. We've seen that with Casper. By basically being a brand that only does traditional mass advertising through retail also doesn't work alone. You need to basically omnichannel and omnimedia. But to be omnimedia and omnichannel, you need to basically have much more levers to push in the company. Everything from fulfillment to distribution to everything else. So as a result, many companies are creating a new position called the chief growth officer. And the CMO either graduates to that position or they bring in someone else and the CMO's role is removed. And then they have like marketers for each of the verticals. So that's the second thing that they're grappling with. The third thing that they're basically grappling with is their own businesses. So about 50 to 60% of marketers are in fast declining businesses. By fast declining, I'm not talking double digits, but once you start declining three to 4% a year, it feels like a fast declining business. So they're in fast declining sort of businesses when they're supposed to be selling and increasing sales. And so it's just a personal thing, which is where is my future and where is my career? So one is about how to work with partners and the other is what their role in the company. Third is very personal, which is like, hey, can I pay the bills? And never underestimate the human pressure that is happening on people. I think we're we're underestimating that. And the fourth and the last one is, okay, I know that all of these three require me to grow. Because if I basically have to figure out how to have a bigger role in my company, if I want to make sure I get a new job in a different company or do a better job in my company, and if I have to figure out how to deal with these amazing platforms, I myself have to grow in skills, stature, credibility, and capability. And then they say, but who the help is helping me grow? Nobody. So those are the four challenges. No, those are scary. <laughs> I was going to say great. They are, they are scary, great. which is why, you know, I basically say, read my book and call me in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> we should change you to a doctor, Tobacco Walla. Yeah, yeah. That's actually one of the big things that I've now started to basically do is in addition to, you know, obviously a lot of people reading the book and then buying it for their teams, they then have me come in and do like a fireside chat with them because the other stuff is I can say incredibly stupid stuff, which is I'm capable of doing because I am stupid, but sometimes in that stupidity, there's some really interesting things, which they could not say because it was either people won't believe them or it's not politically correct. And it's not like I do anything that's politically incorrect, but I do, I say things that are provocative. And as an outsider who now is like a one-person company you can't fire, I can say that. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Well, um, I have a few more questions. I want to switch gears because I like to learn a little bit about the person behind the microphone, if you will. And I, my favorite question, frankly, to ask is this one. Has there been an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? I would say, yes, there are, I think, three different experiences, all of which are driven by people. I was reading a statement the other day, you know, what you leave behind is not something that's etched on monuments, but is sort of interspersed with people. So one is uh, growing up in India to my parents who were voracious readers, who basically also had enough money to educate me, has made a big difference. I could have grown up in India and not been educated. I could have, but they had the ability to educate me and their ability to tell me, go go learn math, even though you want to be a writer, and then fund an education at the University of Chicago basically is one of the reasons I now work in Chicago and I basically have a successful career. That's one. Second is obviously, again, with people is 
you know, I met my wife when we were 12 years old, which is 48 years ago. And basically, my family is extremely important to me. And if I had not met her and did not have these two daughters who tell me I'm full of shit, my life would have been different. I think it would have been worse, though at some stage when they all gang up on me, I kind of wonder whether being a bachelor boy was better. So that's sort of the second. And the third really is the opportunity that somebody took, a risk that someone took on an immigrant who did not have a green card. And someone said, you know, we don't hire people like you, but let's just call you back and see what we can do, which was three or four people at the Leo Burnett company in 1982. And the only job I got was at Leo Burnett. And there were these three, four people who basically said, who the hell cares? Let's take a risk on this guy. And in many ways, I said, okay, I'll spend, you took a risk on me, so I'll spend three, four years here, get my green card, and then go do something else. And um, I'm still there. And part of it really is, it's not the unemployability. It's my old stuff is, if you forget your roots, you'll never have wings. I like that saying. I like that saying a lot. And one follow-up question, and maybe it's <laughs> maybe it's uh, selfish, but you talk about your wife, your two daughters. I do not have two daughters. I have one daughter and one wife, but I grew up around women. Like, you know, my dad worked second shift, and so just the way our family needed to to orient their lives, make it work. So I was all constantly around my sister, my mom, and her friends growing up, and now I'm completely surrounded in my nucleus family by women. Do you think that has an impact on you? Because you, it sounds very similar. It definitely does. I think there's a couple of couple of things. One is there are certain things that you begin to realize. One is that we're living in a world where. In many ways, women... So first of all, I believe that all people are people. So I always you know, talk about humans. So people say, like, what group is better than another group? And I say, we're all humans. Certain humans are better than other humans in certain things, <laughs> right? So my, my whole stuff is I don't, like, basically say this group does better than this group. And, you know, I don't profile that way. But with that being said, there are things living in a... Living and observing both women and observing friends of mine who have boys only for instance, and these are sort of general observations, is here's a few things. One is that the women tend to be, for some reason, they tend to have a higher emotional quotient than I normally see in men. I'm not saying men don't have emotional quotient, but they tend to because they, I think, have to figure out what's going around them because they've always been treated as lessers. You know, at work, the you know, we don't have enough women CEOs, women are not taken seriously enough, they were often sometimes, you know, didn't feel safe. So there's a higher EQ. And we're working in a world increasingly where a lot of the IQ is now being done by the machines. And therefore, the EQ becomes more important. And therefore, me being in this place has become important, because that is what we you know, we're going to, it's going to be woman and machine, man and machine, it's not just going to be us versus machines, because if we're doing something that's only us versus machines, we will lose. But if it's us plus machines, we will win. And so the EQ part is one thing that I found, which has helped me a lot. The second to a great extent is that women actually are much more braver, though they say it in different ways, to show you how to improve. And I don't think it's just, I mean, I'm sure your wife and daughter and cousins, and you know, they do it very subtly, but they do it in a way that helps the medicine go down. It's not like the guys don't tell us how to improve. But they do it in such a way that we want to like punch their face and leave the room. That's that's the difference. And so so to an extent, I think more sensitivity to EQ and more sensitivity to like, hey, you suck, but here's ways you can get better. 
is, is what, what basically happens. And I will tell you that we are likely to arrive in an era which is going to be very dominated by women because what you're beginning to see is the skill sets require more and more of communication, collaboration, and empathy because of what machines are doing. And also because we don't need human strength, you know, so we aren't like killing tigers to eat them and all that in the forest anymore, which is one. And second is education is mattering a lot like never before. And right now, more women are graduating with education than men are. Where there is a quick shortfall, and this is where I worry the most, is basically in technology and software, right? Um, because I do not believe that women can't do software. I just don't think we, they, they have enough opportunities. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Well, two more questions for you. What advice would you give to your younger self if you're starting all over again? So the advice I would give to my younger self if I was starting all over again would be the following. The first is please recognize that you are going to work for 50 years and therefore don't fret every six months or nine months or what happens in a meeting. So for years and years, I would like tie myself into knots. This meeting went bad. This person said that, etc. And my whole stuff is like, hey, we got a 50-year career. I don't even remember the person, the company or the company I was working for, the client I was working for that I used to buy, I got upset about. So I actually wrote a piece, which is not in my book. It's called 10 Career Lessons. So people who are listeners can just Google 10 Career Lessons and Tobacco Wala and you will find it, which is my most popular blog post, which is three years ago, I said, what advice would I give my younger self? So I called it 10 Career Lessons. And my opening thing was, hey, it's a long career. So think about it. And the second one is this. Never underestimate. Now, the, the good news is this I actually did, and I did this more because I don't know, but I would, I would still give it is never underestimate how much of your success is due to things you do not control, which is, are you on trend? So someone who basically today works at a Facebook and Google, 80% of their success is because they're at Facebook and Google and not them, unless you know, you're know you Larry Page and Sergey Brain or one of these things, Right. So my old stuff is, hey, you just happen to be in a company that's doing very well. Lucky for you, but don't conflate that with you thinking you're the world's greatest gift to the world. That's one. So, so much of it is luck. I did well because I ended up being early digital, understood unbuttling of media, got it to direct. So the trend carried me. And part of it is luck. Part of it is, hey, maybe I was ready for it. But what is that? The other one, so luck and trend and where you are. The second one, which is the more important than that, is all the people who have helped you, which you conveniently forget, okay? So my belief is I've never seen anybody succeed without a lot of people along the years helping them succeed. And you know, just as it's this, you know, I think it was like takes a village to raise a child. My belief is nobody successful has become successful without lots and lots of people at work. Forget about parents and mentors and other people at work or in their career helping them. And they should speak out louder. Now, I obviously, as I became successful, I could speak out louder. But, you know, sometimes you didn't speak out loud enough. And if people understand that success is because people have helped you, A, they will ask for help. But more importantly, they will celebrate the people who helped them. That's good advice. That's good advice. Last question for you. A little bit more of a marketing question, I guess, is are there brands or companies that you follow that you feel like other people should be taking notice of? Yeah. So, you know, there are, I sort of talked to you in the traditional and then some sort of newer parts of the 
of the world. So companies that I believe have done a very good job of evolving themselves as the world has moved on are companies like a, a Starbucks, for instance, a Disney that's made the hard decision, even though it's costing them a lot of money to basically say, okay, streaming is here. We got to like bring back all of our programming. We need to make all the investments that we need to basically do. A company like Lego, which has become the world's largest toy company. These were companies that have evolved, that have had challenges. So my whole stuff is people go through these companies and I sort of look at those and say, these are companies that are particularly interesting. In the newer world, you know, companies that have managed to basically understand a combination of business, purpose, and omnichannel, I would point to something like a Warby Parker. Another one that I believe will be amazingly successful, assuming that they execute and the world works with them, are companies like Real Real. And Real Real is a is a very amazing success story because it's basically the CEO of Pets.com who's come back and with experience and a very interesting business model. And you know, the new business models are tending to basically be all people and emotion driven, but they're basically driven on a world where two things are happening. People want amazing stuff, amazing experiences but they want it at a lower cost, and that's what a real real provides, while other people have lots of excess stuff that they want to get rid of so they can buy new stuff. So, you know, real real basically is a market for luxury goods and resale. But at the same stage, in a sort of a different world, which is less sale, is like rent a runway, which is really about, hey, how can I look really great for Instagram, but don't have to buy this stuff forever? And I think what people don't realize is how modern media, media has always changed people's behaviors, and I think modern media, particular social media, is changing the way we behave and therefore how we consume. And it's not just the first order companies. You know, as I tell people, we in the second connected age, so the second connect first connected age was we were connecting to information and transactions, which is the Amazon and Google age, which obviously continues. The second age we were connected to everybody because of the of social networks connected all the time because of phones and connected to the cloud. That second age, yes, it gave birth and increased the market cap of companies like Facebook and Apple and Amazon and Microsoft, but it gave birth to companies like Uber and Dollar Shave Club. None of those would have been possible without the second connected age. And so companies that are sort of evolving, the new companies besides technology companies, so that's the key thing I'm asking marketers to think about. My whole stuff is don't think about how you spend money on Facebook and Google. Think about how you change your products and services in a world where your customers use Facebook and Google. That's very interesting. That's a provocative question. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Rashad, I've greatly enjoyed this conversation. I didn't, I knew it was going to be great, but it's exceeded my expectations. So thank you for coming on the show. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners, and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. 
You need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, the Kantar podcast now.